0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
1: We are in a period of human history in which the challenges to our lives, well-being, and sometimes survival are significant. Challenges that include the coronavirus pandemic, economic inequality, gender discrimination, the challenge of technology and environmental problems like biodiversity loss and climate change. It can feel overwhelming. On this podcast, we are searching for solutions that thread through the many serious challenges we face. In 2020, we began this exploration with a series of conversations around well-being economics. In 2021, we continued the search for new ideas through Indigenous well-being and through our recent series on political leadership. Now we want to talk about work. Has anyone else found themselves wondering about work, particularly during this ongoing coronavirus pandemic? We learned through our discussions on well-being economics that economic structures based on GDP are not set in stone, and by challenging long-standing assumptions, we can improve well-being for so many people. Similarly, the 40-hour week, the eight-hour day, or retiring in our 60s are not truths, but frameworks that can be challenged with quite interesting results. Understanding the role of work in our lives, the impact it has on us and the inequalities that are often perpetuated through the assumptions we have about work can give us solutions that see us caring more for ourselves, our friends and our families and for our environment, this planet on which we live. Can changing ideas around work solve the challenges we face? Well, we'll find out with a series of extraordinary conversations over the next few weeks with some of the great thinkers of our time. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing the region. My name is Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net, and we're part of the Crawford School of Public Policy here at ANU. Crawford School is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. We have a range of degree programs and short courses that are available, and you can check that out on our website, crawford.anu.edu.au study. And It's wonderful to be in the studio today with my co-host,
0: Sharon Bessel. Hi, Anna Greta. It is great to be here, and it is very exciting to be at the beginning of this series on work. Anna Greta and I have have talked about this series for quite a long time and we think it is going to be something very special, so we really hope that you enjoy it as much as we have enjoyed bringing this group of thinkers and activists together. We begin our series on work today by exploring the history of work, the role of work in societies and in the lives of individuals across time, across place and across culture. In doing so, it is clear that there is no single model of work, but today there is a dominant model that has marginalised different ways of thinking about the role and the purpose of work. So what can we learn by looking into the past and learning from the ways different societies and different cultures think about work? To guide us through this journey, which will set the scene for this series, we have with us today a fabulous guest. Dr. James Sussman is an anthropologist and an author. His work has focused particularly on the peoples who live across Southern Africa, particularly across Botswana and Namibia. And he has done anthropological work over a number of years with people who have lived what we might call traditional lives, but have so much that we can learn from. James is a recipient of the SMUTS Commonwealth Fellowship in African Studies at Cambridge University. He is now Director of Anthropos Limited, a think tank that applies anthropological methods to solving contemporary social and economic problems. His book, published in 2017, is Affluence Without Abundance, The Disappearing World of the Bushmen. And in 2020, he published Work, A History of How We Spend Our Time, James is joining us from Cambridge today, and James, we are delighted to have you with us. Welcome to the pod. Thank
2: you for having me here.
0: So at the beginning of a series of discussions around work, the appropriate place to start is probably to define what work is. And this is, of course, really important in terms of framing our conversations. Can you tell us, based on your work, on your work, on your research, how you define work?
2: Um, I define work with great difficulty. <laughs> that's the, that's the, the simple answer. Um, you know, look, work, work is one of those very strange concepts. It's one that we all intuitively understand. And I think it's something that people intuitively understand across cultures. Um, I'm not aware of any cultures that don't have a concept of work or a classification of work or a word for work. But in different cultures, of course, the work that people do is very, very different indeed. And what is constituted as work is very, very different indeed. And in the human context, generally work is, you know, if you're going to come up with some kind of universal definition, you end up with something very broad, which is really purposeful activity with a distinctive aim. Um, but often in the context of meeting our most basic needs or other kinds of needs. Uh, The truth is, of course, that all species, one way or another, do some work. In fact, in a physical sense of the word, um, work is one of the things that actually distinguishes living organisms from non-living organisms, because all living organisms do a particular kind of physical work, and that's only living organisms go out and they actively um, seek out and capture energy and then use that energy to organize and transform elements and molecules around them into living cells, um, which are orderly and maintained, and then convert that energy again into making those cells grow and then reproduce. Um, And this is, of course, something that lots of other things do not do stones do not do that stars do not do that even though they may consume energy and so on so in a strange way work is part of the universal compact that brings all living organisms together but the big distinction is on the human side is that it's purposeful activity and that as i said varies quite considerably from culture to culture and space to space and it depends on how we construct and constitute what our needs are.
1: That's probably a good spot to reflect on the work that you've done as an anthropologist. And I know that you've used a lot of your, your deep understanding um, from work in, the, in Southern Africa uh, to under- better understand the human relationship with work. And I wonder if you what sorts of insights you can give us from the work that you've done with the Bushmen in the in the Kalahari region, um, to better appreciate the role of work, uh, both historically and and in a day to day sense.
2: Yeah, I suppose there's sort of two angles um, that are interesting with um, Bushmen and actually hunter gatherers more generally, because what's quite interesting is that in a sense we are physiologically the product of the kind of work that we do and. Cultures that have technically survived by foraging um, have all, and I think it's a great deal to do with the way that they relate with their, engage with their environment, all tend to have fairly similar um, approaches and ideas about the concept of work and what constitutes work, and of course, a far broader economic approach to work. Now. The Junarati, who are the Bushman group that I've been working with mostly, I've been working with many and so common, but the Jean-Marcy are have been my principal focus, were very famous in the 1960s and that they were one of the first um, still extant hunter-gatherer societies that um, were part of the sort of big anthropological rush to study um, before the great waves of the expanding modern globalized economy washed them, washed them up. And at the time in the 1960s, it was assumed that hunter-gatherer societies and hunter-gatherers were, you know, endured lives that were nasty, brutish and short. That um, human history was a history where we'd moved from you know, managed, you know, great, great historical scarcity to greater prosperity with agriculture, and then, of course, greater prosperity and ease of life with industrialization. Um, and it was assumed that hunter-gatherers basically endured a constant battle for survival against harsh and unforgiving environments in an often eat-or-be-eaten world. And uh, in the 1960s, the Genoisi were the subject of really the first serious study, just looking at how hunter-gatherer societies, small-scale hunter-gatherer societies, organized their economies. And because they lived in a pretty harsh desert region, which was at the time thought to resemble perhaps the sort of zones that early humankind occupied, they were selected for study. And an called Richard Lee did a very famous economic input output analysis of a group that was still largely autonomous foragers and he came to the conclusion that they only spent around 15 to 17 hours a week on the food quest now there's sort of some ambiguity around the numbers now in hindsight but the basic thing was that they actually were considerably less than we thought Um, and also it seemed that they had a pretty reasonable life. In fact, when Richard Lee was there, it was in the middle of a drought. Um, and while the farming societies and fringes of the Kalahari were struggling desperately and dependent on aid, um, the Zunmati forages in the Kalahari didn't work very hard and were very well maintained. So it suggested, in other words, that um, the idea that hunter-gatherer life was a grim battle for survival and constant battle for survival didn't, you know, wasn't the case. Um, but interestingly, there was a bigger economic um, question around it because these hunter-gatherer societies like the Genoiscy, um tended to focus all their economic efforts on meeting their need- immediate needs. In other words, they spent very little time um, trying to secure resources for the future or to build surpluses. So once their short-term need- needs for that day were met, they tended to stop working. Um, and this ended up being called the original affluent society by the anthropologist Marshall Sahlins, And he was referring to foraging small scale foragers in general. He made the point that these were societies that were affluent because not because they had vast needs, as we imagine, according to classical economics, we all have vast needs, infinite needs that we can never meet um, and are constantly frustrated by he argued that foragers like the Genoisi, and indeed many others, um, worked as little as they did and enjoyed as much leisure time as they did because they had few needs that were relatively easily met. In other words, they weren't plagued by constant scarcity. Now, when I started working with the Genoisi, it was, in a sense, I called really only the tail end of hunting and gathering, in a sense, as a practical life form. And indeed, spent much of my early fieldwork working on these vast um, cattle ranches at the time, um, owned pretty much exclusively by um, white South African and German heritage farmers, um, and at the tail end of a really rough um, civil war to end apartheid in Namibia. Um, And much of my work focused on uh, really quite extraordinary difficulties, and indeed other... Bushmen groups that were there, Naro and Pukwe and Pino who couldn't, uh, their struggles adapting to the kind of enforced labor regime that was associated with um, white farms, as they were referred to them. And so it was really in that kind of gap of sort of seeing people like the Genoisi trying to make sense of and engage and reorient their economic views to align better With this vast economy which had expanded and swallowed them up, that it became very clear that this world of work was something far more relative, something far more fluid, that we weren't all driven by the same kind of motivations. And that's really the basis of it. Sorry, that's a very long answer, but I hope it's a workable one.
1: No, it's a really, it's a very good and very useful answer. Affluence and consumption are, are quite a fascinating part of the work that you've done with the hunter-gatherer peoples and the challenges and particularly the challenging of commonly held ideas that you've just taken us through really, the primitivist asto- notions and uh, fantasies that we might have about how people were living historically. The affluence that you see in the communities and the labeling of affluence, uh, could you describe that in a little bit more detail for us?
2: Yeah, I could. I mean, look, affluence is a word that I've borrowed from a far cleverer mind than mine, the anthropologist Marshall Silence. And again, I think it's 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 one that's it's perhaps not exactly the right word. Um, you know, the the but it's one that's now sort of historically established within the anthropological anthropological canon. And when Marshall Silence came up with it, it was interestingly he did so in the context of, you know, a couple of years before these research findings were first reported and suggesting hunter-gatherers didn't have to work very hard. You know, the economist John Galbraith at Harvard had produced what would later become, I believe, the best-selling economics book in um, the 20th century in the US called The Affluent Society, in which he argued that America was by then so prosperous um, that um, they risked by continuing to work as they did and by continuing to inflate people's aspirations and desires and sense of scarcity through advertising to manufacture desire that america risked wasting um, the affluence it had won squandering it i believe is the word that he used Um, so when we talk about hunter-gatherer affluence it's kind of in that context it's one that questions the idea of monetary affluence as the determinant of uh, happiness, contentment, or indeed affluence. So one can, of course, be time wealthy. One can, of course, be affluent in terms of relationships and so on. And so this is really the sense in which the engagement with hunter-gatherers comes in. And the idea that hunter-gatherers were affluent on the basis of having few needs simply met is a particularly interesting one because ours as a society where we assume, you know, Orthodox economics is based on the assumption of scarcity. It is based on the assumption that in evolutionary history, we were shaped by the scarcity endured by our ancestors into becoming creatures that have infinite needs um, and limited means. In other words, that we're never satisfied. So the classical economics orthodoxy suggests that food today, having enough to eat today, is nothing more than a trigger to start worrying about and acquiring food for tomorrow and the next day, that we are continuously future focused, that we are continuously hostage to our aspirations, insecurities, risks, and anxieties. And, you know, this is is something that sits really at the beating heart of economics as a discipline. And Consequently, it sits at the beating heart of all the different economic institutions which we still organize our lives around, at least in a theological or an economic theological sense. You you open any economic textbook and you will be told within those first couple of pages – that economics is the study is the science that studies, you know, how we allocate scarce resources in our societies and that it's based on this idea that everything is intrinsically scarce because our desires are our desires are infinite. Yet with foraging societies who were prepared to not work for surpluses, so not only was this assumption that our hunter-gatherer ancestors, if we assume that they organize themselves like small scale foraging societies that survived into the twentieth century, if they organize themselves like that, then it's clear that they weren't continuously obsessed with scarcity. Um, and in fact, for many foraging societies, and it's perhaps most eloquently done with the societies in, you know, central African rainforest, Baka, the Aka, the Baka, um, societies we've traditionally referred to as pygmy societies. And, you know, they've been very eloquent in terms of describing their economic model as based not on the assumption of scarcity, but on the assumption of the providence of their environment. Um, and the same thing applies indeed with foragers pretty much everywhere, certainly all the ones that endured into the 20th century. They tended to have a sense that their environments weren't intrinsically scarce, but they were intrinsically generous and provident. And that was partially why they didn't need to acquire surpluses or store food or do anything, live const- constantly a hostage to future aspirations. So it provides a profound challenge, you know, hunter <laughs> gatherer provides a profound challenge to really orthodox economics and the very fundamental assumptions about human nature that underwrite it and it does you know for me it's a very important thing to engage with um, to a large extent because you know if our societies are shaped around our economic theology and i use that word i use that word intentionally It is somewhat like we have the complex theology, theological thought discussions coming out of various assumptions in whether it's um, Islam or Catholicism or Judaism. So, for example, in Catholicism, there are certain assumptions about the nature of the Holy Spirit and the Trinity on which all analysis and the institutions are based. And to me, it seems that Hunter-Gatherer, our studies and understanding of Hunter-Gatherer, suggests that classical economics is, in this sense, a theology based on a set of assumptions that are absolutely not provable and, in fact, that seem to run contrary to much of the evolutionary and anthropological evidence.
0: James, I'm wondering as I hear you talk about this, what the gender relations are within the Joao Hansi and I'm sure I've mispronounced that terribly, but with the people that, that you've worked with. And as you were talking, I was thinking about the work of Esther Boserup, um, a Danish economist way back in the 1960s, who was a modernisation theorist, so she believed in the theology of economics that you're talking about, but she was also concerned about gender. And she put forward the argument that with um, greater technology within a focus on increasing growth um, and modernisation, women had become marginalised and their work had become undervalued, whereas in what she referred to, and I put it in inverted commas, commas primitive societies, women's and men's status had been quite equal. Their roles may have been different, but all were seen as contributing to the greater good and to livelihoods, and it was valued equally. And I'm just wondering in the work that you've done, if you could, could tell us a bit about the way gender relations play out and how the types of work that were done shaped that.
2: Certainly. Look, with the Zimwasi well, were very interesting in gender terms, and indeed, uh, it's very much the same with many of the other Kalahari foragers. And in fact, the first group I ever worked with as a young master student in NARO, um, it was in a sense the wonderful, wonderful organi- way they organized gender relationships, which was part of the appeal of being there. Um, now, again, using the words of um, Richard Lee, who did that famous economic study, he described Shunwasi as a society, as being fiercely egalitarian. Um, And fiercely egalitarian applied in every context and across every kind of social, um, I suppose, division or epistemology that existed, whether it was gender, whether it was age. Basically, it was a society without hierarchy. It was a society in which roles were very clearly demarcated according to age or indeed gender. So for example, in genre society, Unlike some other foraging societies, women, for example, just did not hunt. Um, there were a whole series of, sort of taboos and restrictions, and women were primarily responsible in work terms in terms of gathering, gathering wild foods and so on. And while men could gather, women certainly couldn't hunt. Men did indeed gather. And likewise with childcare, um, while nurturing of small infants was, of course, um, uh, a mother's job purely because of the physicality of Breastfeeding, looking after children was something done done by everybody. Now, what they did was they had very strongly defined gender roles and taboos around it, but quite simply they didn't hierarchize these. Um and so there was no real distinction. There's no, you know, in, uh, in terms of how small individual communities um organize themselves. And if you call you might call them loosely sort of Traditional groups that inherit rights of access to land, the leadership of those groups, which is very loose and ad hoc, um, and based on qualif- based on yeah, I mean, not hereditary in a sense, um, was equally you know men and women had equal status. Their gender was just simply not a consideration within that, um, and part of this, is, in a sense, is you know in terms of the usefulness of the work women did. Everybody in you know in the Junlassi case. Um, they probably were more dependent on foraged foods um, gathered foods than hunted foods than many other forager societies so it was a little over 50 percent of their nutrition typically came from gathering mongongo nuts and tubers and wild fruits and so on and the remainder came from hunting meat was a more highly valued food um, simply because in a sense it it provided a a series in particular things like fats that, you know, people couldn't get out of, couldn't get out of um, vegetable-based products. But despite that higher ranking of the produce that men occasionally produced, the fact is that in those societies, there was very little gender differentiation in terms of real status. Um, And, you know, men and women were largely as powerful and powerless as one another. Indeed, it was really refreshing as a place to live with and people to live with. The kind of fluidity and that gender egalitarianism being utterly unquestioned, despite the clarity of the roles, was very wonderful. And it was also something that was slightly disconcerting to be part of that process, is that as they became more integrated in, you know, what was very masculine, dominant, um, settler economy centered around, you know, often dominant big men, you know, farming in the countryside. Um, it was, it was, you know, uh, it was notable to watch how that gender dynamic began to change and transform as they became far more integrated into, I suppose, the global labor economy, in which in their particular space, you know, it was male labor was far more legitimate than female labor on the basis of providing service to the farmers that they work for. So it was, in a sense, quite a profound transition for them and quite a profound transition in terms of gender relations and hierarchy in particular.
1: And so if we think about the changes in human organisation from a hunter-gatherer system through... The agricultural revolution that changed our relationship in some places with food, and then the subsequent industrial revolution, uh, we can see that the relationship between people and work is still changing. How far removed do you think we are now uh, from from the, the the times where work perhaps started in southern Africa all those millennia ago?
2: Well, look, I think I think things have changed a great deal. I mean, this is. You mentioned the agricultural revolution, and I mean, the word revolution always gives the impression that it's something that happened very quickly, but um, it's obviously, you know, the agricultural (laughs) revolution took a very long time. Indeed, the changes it created in terms not just of our relationship with work, but our relationship with economics, with being, and with one another were absolutely profound. I mean, to me, it it certainly seems um, the most important and far-reaching transition in Um, human history, not just because it changed how we secured our food and our livelihood, but it changed completely our relationships with our environment and and one another. Um, And this was largely because um, making a living from agriculture and obviously quite why and how this transition took place is another huge set of debates and speculations. But making a living from agriculture is an awful lot more work than making a living from foraging. Um, in that it also involves a lot more structured work in that it ties you to a kind of agricultural cycle that tells you what jobs you have to do and when, and it also brings in a great deal more risk. So where foragers typically went and plucked whatever they needed from their provident environment, farmers only ever view their environments as potentially provident, and they have to work to make that environment provident. They, in a sense, take on the duty of the gods in a sense in providing themselves food and they view the returns they get from the land as often a reward or something for 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 hard work um so the transition to farming required a completely different set of attitudes to work and perhaps one of the most important things is that where hunter gatherers focus their work effort on meeting their immediate short-term needs in farming all your returns and your rewards occur in the future so you invest your labor into your land and your crop and your herds or whatever in the view of maybe getting a return from that investment of labor sometime in the future which in itself is immediately a very different way of thinking about procurement economics and food and it's a delayed return but being getting a delayed return for your efforts in the future also means ensuring that you have enough to sustain yourself now so in farming societies um, it became very important to have surpluses that would sustain you through and over the next agricultural society. But again, the nature of farming was that farming societies tended to depend on one or two high-yielding crops, um, and as a result of that dependency on so few crops, effectively putting um, putting their eggs in one basket or two basket, um, they exposed themselves to a high degree of risk. So, where foraging societies, again, and you know, we see this everywhere, depended on a huge range of different food sources, so that it meant that they could respond to the environment, you know, they could they, they could ride on the back of their um, environment's own response to shifting climatic dynamics, so for example if it's a particularly dry season in the Kalahari, certain vegetables and fruits will thrive at the expense of others, and if it's a particularly wet season other ones will, so they can, you know the diet changes according to the circumstances of the year, however in farming societies it's all to do with every year, mimicking the ideal um, environmental conditions to make the crops that you depend on thrive. And that exposes you to a huge range of risks that um, for, uh, uh, forager societies didn't have. Um, so, you know, and it's something that's very obvious, again, looking at, say, the Nwasi's neighbors in Namibia, the Tswana on the one side, and the Herero and the Kavango, and um, all of whom are agricultural societies. And you see people all the time who have an entire year's worth of food Destroyed by a single elephant in one night, or a blight of something, or a lion getting into a lion getting into a cattle kraal, um, and then of course drought, too much rain, not enough rain, floods, um, plagues, and insect plagues of endless numbers that you can't imagine. So all these potentially catastrophic risks come in, and ultimately, societies, farming societies that manage these risks better, that adapted to them, that worked the hardest to build the most better lion-proof shelters, to weed their fields the most thoroughly, to ensure that their crops were properly irrigated. Um, Work became the ultimate and critical transaction which determined your survivability. And then there was a final thing that got thrown into the mix, was that because work became important in agricultural society, population, work hands that could do work were typically viewed as something good. So you ended up with a cultural norm of producing large families because large families could provide hands to do work. Um, the flip side of this, of course, was that any improvements in agricultural productivity were typically consumed and taken up very rapidly by a growing population. So agricultural societies were constantly in a state of growth. Um, and as a result of this, this is partially why when we see agriculture expanding across the world beginning 10,000 years ago and in a whole series of different sites. Typically, that process of expansion was not based on foraging societies seeing farming societies and saying, ah, we want to be like that. It was actually these societies expanding at the expense of foraging societies, which were typically wiped, wiped off. So these societies worked an immense amount harder, they produced higher yield crops, but they continuously grow and they continuously lived fairly precariously. And this is really, this experience of agriculture is really, it's what underwrites many of our ideas about um, contemporary economics or certainly orthodox economics, I think.
0: I think that's the perfect place for us to take a break. Um, Listeners, don't go away. We're going to come back and talk some more with James Sussman. And to start to think about some of these really fascinating ideas about different understandings of work can help us to think through some of the challenges that we face now and into the future. So we'll be back in just a moment. So, listeners, welcome back. We're with James Sussman and we're talking about the history of work, a small topic. Um, James, I wanted to go back to the point that you made just before the break about the way in which the Zhuangzi um People and politics and way of living was deliberately egalitarian, and you talked about that um, in relation to gender and age and you know other social characteristics, and some of the writing about Australian Indigenous knowledge, like Sand Talk by Tyson Yunkaporta, discusses similar. Long standing cultural techniques uh, within Australian Indigenous culture that really limit the rise of ego and narcissism and, and maintain that grip on egalitarianism. I wonder if we could just ask you to reflect on how those ideas and principles and ways of living about egalitarianism, about equality, can perhaps be used today to help us rethink. The way that we approach work and consumption and affluence
2: it 's very interesting you know when in most of our societies i mean it seems to be it 's certainly something that I grew up with, um, pretty much every agricultural society or post agricultural society i 've ever worked with hierarchy has been a thing there 's been this assumption that this is the way that we naturally organize ourselves and you know, it it it's you know, we certainly in the if you take the sort of European tradition of thought in particular, you know, hierarchy was very much part of the colonial expansion and so on, and this belief that there's a fundamental order, a chain of being almost to God. The evidence from Hunter Gatherer Society suggests, you know, that's certainly in the past that Actually, it suggests that rather than us being instinctively hierarchical or or overwhelmingly hierarchical, it also suggests that we've evolved in a very fundamental way to respond quite viscerally to inequality. Um, And it also suggests that given the long history of hunting and gathering, assuming that they did organize themselves in similar ways to the small-scale foragers that were documented in the 20th century, it also suggests that for a huge period in human history, our ancestors went to great efforts, as you said, to avoid hierarchy, to sort of squash and um, squash people trying to stand up above the crowd. So in the Zunlar case, this is, for example, managed through a whole series of institutions based primarily around mockery. And, you know, one of the best, uh, you know, it's in sort of the anthropological shorthand is to refer to, as I mentioned earlier, meat is the most highly valued of foods. Um, and so in order partially to prevent hunters from getting big heads and from using their ability to acquire meat and distribute it as a means to acquire power or influence. They have a tradition they're called insulting the meat. Um, And it's a sort of partially tongue in cheek, but quite a real thing. And that if a hunter goes and kills a large animal, then they come back home. The hunter will be expected to be humble and rather than be praised by everybody in the community who are very happy that there's a large portion of meat to be they will be mocked and teased. Ah, this giraffe, it's not enough to feed my mother-in-law. Ah, it's too small. Its bones are horrible. Look at it. Its meat tastes like piss and so on and so on. Um, and this leveling behavior is done to, in particular, it's focused on males, um, partially because of the hunting, but also I think there's a sense that men are more likely to sort of get, get a big head. And it's done effectively to, you know, to use a gentleman's words, to calm, to cool men's hearts. But this institution of leveling and this beating down tall poppies, I think was a vital part of our evolutionary history. And I think it's a vital part of who who we are, largely because you know the importance of functioning as a community in a sense, a, an integrated organism greater than the sum of its parts, was based on having basically highly egalitarian, small <laughs> mobile foraging foraging bands. And there was considered a real value to it. There was also a real sense within these societies that there was always a thin edge of thin edge of the wedge um, when it came to things like hierarchy and accumulation. Um, and so they were highly conscious of it. Um, and they viewed it. And so many of the things Many of the institutions aimed at maintaining egalitarianism were very specifically aimed and explicitly described as serving the function of um, maintaining kind of peace. They viewed inequality and indeed hierarchy of any sort as ultimately something that was socially corrosive. So there are a whole other series of mechanisms that loosely were applied in order to ensure that this equality was maintained, and in particular in the material sense, to disincentivize the accumulation of material resources. And the most important one beyond things like the levelling behaviours of insulting meat was an economic levelling behaviour um, called demand sharing, which actually was a phrase that was coined um, first in respect of various Aboriginal societies in Arnhem Land. And this is basically a system of giving and receiving. Which is the complete polar opposite to that associated with agricultural societies and industrial societies, where effectively it is in the right of the receiver to demand anything from anybody else. So, in our society, where if I have something that you might want, it's expected that you will ask me and you'll say, please, and I will choose whether to give you something. And then when I give you something, you will say, I am thank you, I am in your debt, or some some signal of interpersonal obligation that you're going to reciprocate something, that there's some idea that there's an exchange involved. And undergatherer societies, by contrast, pretty much anybody typically in an idealized version of demand sharing, it's obviously more complicated than this, anybody technically can ask anybody for anything else. Any individual can spontaneously tax any other individual of any surplus that they have. And that's a very efficient way for redistributing assets. Um, through a society and it means that ultimately everybody gets a share of everything it also means that people contribute less are supported by people who contribute more and certainly in these societies there wasn't the kind of anxieties we have about freeloaders that associate um as that uh, we associate with modern politics now for me it's a particularly interesting thing to understand in terms of now and that we constantly battle with border societies much larger societies with what constitutes egalitarianism what constitutes Rights. So Nsimalsi, for example, when eventually in Namibia, apartheid crumbled, and you know, people were told, people were told, ah, everybody's equal in Namibia. Um, you now have the right to vote. You know, Nsimalsi looked at me, highly confused, saying, "Well, we can't understand how everybody's equal because, in order for anybody to equal, the first thing that has to be equal equalized is what we own." Um, you know, it, so they said the vote is pretty meaningless if we don't have any land, for example. Um, but uh, it's it's it, yeah it's an it's an extraordinary thing the forage egalitarianism and I think it's something that we need to pay careful attention to now um, in particular because we live in societies where we do have this extraordinary productive surplus based on this illusion of scarcity and you know I think for once in the history since the agriculture began we actually are in a position where we are able to support and ensure everybody. Uh, is looked after and and sustained. And we don't require everybody to have to work their knuckles to the bone in order to do so. Um, so I think there's certainly a page we can take out of a forager book, um, not least given that forager history lasted 300,000 years, um, whereas um, post-agricultural history is 10,000 years going and things might not be looking so great now.
1: Well, that actually brings me to the next question, which is around catastrophic risks, the sorts of things that may compromise the ongoing viability of civilizations. And I'm thinking particularly around issues like climate change. I feel like there's, there's a tremendous amount to learn from this transition from the hunter-gatherer egalitarian model through to the consumption-driven models of, uh, of, the, of our post-agricultural organisation. So, what can we learn about changing our relationship with work to help solve some of these catastrophic risks that do threaten uh, our future?
2: Look, I, th- I, th- I think the lessons are, in a sense, fairly straightforward. Um, you know, we we do live in societies of extraordinary abundance at the moment. I mean, this is, you know, the, the, the idea that there's any kind of scarcity, you know, is long <laughs> gone. You know the biggest public health issues, um, notwithstanding, notwithstanding potentially zoonotic plagues from our industrialised factory farms and, you know, occasionally um, wild animals, is that the biggest risks we face all come from consuming too much rather than too little. Public health issues are indeed obesity is a problem. We are so productive. That you know, agriculture is now 1.3% of us in the United States, or 1.3% of Americans, for example, now provide so much food that you know half half of Americans' agri- agricultural produce ends up in landfill anyway. And obesity is a massive problem. Um, we're so productive that we use and misuse our affluence um, very, very badly. And beyond the fact that our productivity at all cost mindset um, risks cannibalizing our our future. Um, you know, we're we're in a we're we're in a point where we do face, yeah, you know, genuinely existential risks. and it requires a degree of moderation. And the first thing that hunter gatherers tell us is that we don't need to be beholden to the assumptions of classical economics or indeed our recent agricultural ancestors about the nature of scarcity and human nature. We are not creatures cursed to labor in a sort of purgatory between our infinite desires and limited means by nature of, you know, our genetic makeup. It clearly wasn't the case fine together. So the first thing it does is it allows us to start looking at solutions for the future that don't hold us prisoner to, you know, what is a pretty bleak view of our species. Um, So that's the first thing. The second thing is they actually remind us again that actually there's some sustainable balance is possible. Um, but that requires the active management of certain kinds of institutions and engagement, and how we organise ourselves. Um, and as I say, the evidence now suggests that Homo sapiens emerged <laughs> a thousand years ago and lasted through hunting and foraging till very recently, indeed, without these kind of catastrophic risks uh, that we face. But for me, the main thing it suggests is not to be—you know—we've never been. You know, the world is very different to how it was ten thousand years ago. The seven and a half billion of us going on nine billion um you know we have huge energy energy demands and so on we're in circumstances that we've never been in before that there's no obvious precedent but what there is is we can take from our past understanding that we don't need to be hostage to certain crude views of human nature developed and amplified during the agricultural era and then the 19th century um, in order to start imagining what are the kinds of things that we can do to begin to better organize both our economic impacts so that it's more sustainable and ultimately manage what I think a whole series of secondary social and political risks that come out of where our economies are now org- organized, in particular the more automated they become. So, for me, understand the virtue of understanding hunter gatherers is, is primarily a question of Understanding that past to enable us to free ourselves of certain assumptions about who we are as we start trying to reimagine and renegotiate and recreate a far more sustainable future for ourselves.
0: James, I love the way you suggest that we can draw on the past to reimagine the present and to imagine the future. And that's something that we've been talking about uh, quite a bit um, over a number of, of podcasts. But you mentioned then automation. And of course, we are currently in a context of increasing automation in many jobs. And this is viewed very differently. Some would see it as a very positive thing where mundane, very hard work is going to be a thing of the past, uh, where people have more leisure time um, and perhaps be able to go back to a, a different, better lifestyle. But we also have serious concerns about job losses, redundancy, precarity, and so on. What do you think that automation means for the future of work and and for the future of the way in which we think about both work, um, but also our lives more broadly?
2: Automation, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm very much in line with uh, John Maynard Keynes and Oscar Wilde and Bertrand Russell and Those who imagined earlier in the 20th century and um, 19th century that basically automation, improvements in technology, would ultimately spare us from having to do difficult work in order to meet our basic needs. And by this, I mean the kind of arduous work of, you know, the hard work of plowing in the fields and with calloused hands and, and sore backs. But what they also imagined when they painted out this kind of future where we were spared of arduous work, was that actually we'd be enabled and empowered to spend our time doing other kinds of work. Human beings are, you know, we have evolved to be purposeful. I talked about that right at the beginning. It's very much part of who we are. We are lost and bereft. There's a reason why prison is a punishment. It's because we are denied the opportunity of finding that fulfillment and purposefulness, um, that makes life worth living. Now, what automation ought to be doing, as far as I'm concerned, is sparing us um, from having to do the unpleasant jobs and freeing us to be able to pursue and expand our energy doing work that is meaningful, that creates value in perhaps other ways. So automation, for me, offers an opportunity to excise ourselves from this kind of monetized Um, exchange, and it's not even an exchange of labor, the illusion of the monetized exchange of labor, in order to be able to spend our time and energy doing things that are virtuous. Yet we, at the moment, live in a world where we require, for example, I can think of endless numbers of gifted musicians and artists, for example, who have to spend their lives, you know, serving frappuccinos or being sandwich boards outside coffee shops purely in order that they can have a job rather than spending their time doing the things that they're particularly gifted at. We also live in a society where, and you know, I'm speaking to you overlooking the addenbrook site in Cambridge and the AstraZeneca head office and all all the rest, where you have people incentivized um by the nature that we've organized our monetized environment on these, you know, fairly archaic agricultural assumptions of scarcity where our brightest and our best are incentivized instead of becoming immunologists, which might be their great love or, as I say, artists. or They effectively get penalized for that and you get far better rewarded by going and working at a Goldman Sachs or uh, Rio Tinto or so on. So we have this kind of skewed reorganization um, of our economy, which ends up sending our resources into other spaces. And I think this is the the great opportunity of automation is really it provides us a means to reimagine our future and to reorganize how we do everything. Um, And certainly if we do it right, I think automation um, and of course automation requires energy as well. So there's that concern as well. But it does provide us an avenue to create, I suppose, a more functional and sustainable society if we do it right. Um, at the moment, we're not doing it right. And Automation has, you know, one obvious economic impact, and that is that it makes it much harder for people, and despite the narrative of it still being very big, in particular places like the United States, and indeed, I think, Australia, this idea that you can work your way out of poverty effectively, that you can achieve whatever you dream if you're just willing to work hard enough. The truth is, the more automated an economy becomes, the more capital-intensive it becomes, the more it comes about machinery, having tools and kits. And the less differentiated work is, everybody becomes a kind of middle manager, sort of looking after what's happening with machines. But the truth is that actual labor becomes has a far lower marginal utility in that kind of economy and so even if we maintain the myth of um labor being able to you know achieve whatever you want, the truth is actually you know a far better basis for you know evaluative success in the way we currently organize our highly productive ever more automated economies, is really access to capital. And so it reproduces and expands inequality. And it's no coincidence that really since 1980, the first stirrings of the digital revolution, that next great phase of industrialization, that you've seen inequality soar, in particular on the basis of capital. And at the same time, since that very same time, you've also seen the value of capital assets soaring. So suddenly we've got generations of millennials who can't even dream of realistically dream of affording to purchase a property in the cities where they work their 48 and 60 hour weeks. Um, So automation offers us great opportunity. Um, At the moment, though, we're squandering it.
0: James, one possibility that's sometimes discussed in relation to automation is to replace some forms of care work, Now, much care work that's done in uh, modern societies is unpaid, but a lot of the care work that is paid is very lowly paid and often undervalued. And certainly in the Australian context, that's the case of um, childcare for preschool aged children, but also the case for aged care. Um, and so one of the, the narratives is you know that low paid work could be could be replaced through automation. But of course that does raise questions about the, the nature of care and how it may be more than work and more and about more than economic value, but about connection and compassion within societies. And I'm just wondering if you could reflect a little on how we should think of care work as we look forward to this kind of bold age of automation.
2: Well, this is again where I say that you know part part of the problem is that we we're, we're sitting we organize our economies. The, the the fundamental assumptions behind it and the things that make the institutions grind over are just simply the wrong ones for the era we live in. This assumption of scarcity um, and a way that monetization, in effect, and the way we apportion value, because of this assumption of scarcity in an economy of abundance, actually means that certain things get valued over and above certain activities, jobs get valued over and above others, which don't reflect the way most of us actually think about them. Most of us do, for example, think. And survey after survey shows again and again, the majority of people, when you ask them, what are the most essential jobs? What are the ones we care about most in societies? It is things like care for our children, care for the elderly, because there is that vital human Contact, but also because we recognize it as something skilled that it produces value of another kind. We also recognize that there are many other kinds of valued um, roles: educators, um, researchers, all sorts of all sorts of things which don't get highly valued in terms of the way we organize our economies at the moment. So you end up with sort of slightly absurd situation where, for example, you might get a derivatives trader at Goldman Sachs who might take home and a yeah, quite literally, five or 600 times the income of um, somebody involved in care work or social care or even a nurse and so on. And so this is something that I think needs to be organized. And I think it's not just in that particular space. There are many ways. The monetized economy does not reflect values particularly well, partially because it's so distorted when you have a huge amount of wealth in some people's hands and very little in others other the nature of value of money becomes very changed because it is very changeable. The marginal utility of that money is very different for a rich person and a poor person. And the more of it that's concentrated in the fewer hands, the more it ceases to represent, I suppose, what you might call the will of the demos, the sort of massive, you know, we might have a democracy when it comes to voting, but certainly in terms of our abilities to uh, utilize cash, it, we, we we don't. And so it does not reflect, our society does not, societies, the way we organize now don't, does not reward the things that we feel are most deserving of reward. And again, this is where I've, I, I hope our next big economic challenge is, is to find a way of Organizing our productive relationships with one another that enable us to start maximizing and looking at these other forms of value. And I think a really critical one, it's certainly one that means a great deal to me in, in the context of Namibia and the Kalahari, is for example, you know, the last 20 years of conservation work that we've worked in Southern Africa, protecting elephants and so on, and lions and Thai ecosystems and microfauna, have all based on this idea that somehow these Um, spaces, natural spaces, must pay for themselves in order to justify their existence. So you've had this whole narrative of ecosystem services, or in Southern Africa, we talk about community-based natural resource management, where, you know, effectively for a population of elephants to survive, they can't survive just because it's a good thing to have elephants. Those elephants have to be justified economically through primarily, in the case of Namibia, through external, through photographic safaris and through hunting safaris. Um, you know, my sense is, is that things like this exist and ought to exist and be valued in and of their own rights much. And I think the same goes to things like beyond the environment, to things like time. Um, so, for example, my, my children are French and my ex-wife is French and my future wife is French. And one of the few things I really enjoy in France is the stubborn refusal to work on a Wednesday afternoon. Wednesday afternoons are more important than work. And that's to do with the nature of value. Same again with Sundays and so on. And I think, this is a, I think this is really something about beating off that kind of neoliberal economic orthodoxy that has got so baked into, you know, certainly people of my age, anybody who, you know, for millennial generation Xs and, and beyond. And that's, that's certainly something that I think is important that we change and that we need to change and that we need to be made aware of in order to change.
1: James, I think we could probably talk with you for many hours and, and I, I do hope actually we get to have more conversations in, in the, the years ahead. We might need to bring this to a close with a final question and I'm reflecting again on the series that Sharon and I ran on wellbeing economics last year and thinking through the solutions to changing our economic framework in a way that might address some of the issues. If you were in charge, how would you like to see the role of work evolve to ensure our best future?
2: If I were in charge, and I, I mean, I'm just going to take a pun. If I was in charge, actually, it's, it's a double phase question, so I'll give you two answers. We're at a stage where we need to experiment. Um, you know, it, it, we, we live in a world where everybody's sort of desperate for answers, and we expect our politicians to have a policy platform that has answers within it. This is what we will do to solve the problem. And you end up with policy platforms like Build a Bloody Wall or um, you know, brick up the English channel and throw away Europe, or you end up with these really short term What I would like to, if I was put in charge, I would say these are the problems that we need to solve. We don't know how to solve them. We have to experiment. We have to approach it as if we're engineers trying to solve a problem. We can see we have problems with excessive energy usage um, and environmental waste. We can see we have a problem with people having unsatisfied, often pointless jobs. We see there's a problem with inequality, but we don't know how to organize ourselves to fix them. We know that there's some things that have been tried in the past, sort of, you know, heavy forms of communism earlier early in the 20th century and various softer forms of socialism. What I would like to see us do is experiment and experiment properly and bravely and then be prepared for those experiments to fail. I would love to see. So if I was in charge, I would say the first experiments we're going to do are to deal with wealth taxes and a universal basic income to effectively disincentivize, you know, vast accumulation of wealth and hopefully amplify at the same time other forms of value. Um, you know, people often talk about those other forms of value as natural capital and so on. But I I really don't like the term capital in it, because the minute you go to capital, you start thinking of interest and growth and so on. I'd like to, I'd certainly like to see. Something like that. I'd also start looking at things like diminishing the working week, um, which I think once you have universal basic income is something very straightforward, very straightforward to do. Um, so that's 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 what I'd do um, if I was in charge, is I'd start a policy of experimentation and engagement and be prepared for them to fail. And that's certainly what if somebody started a political party saying that I'm prepared to see the problem and experiment like crazy party, then that's the one I'm going to vote for. Um, in terms of sort of a, 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 an absolute vision, um, my sense is is that once, um, because we're sufficiently prosperous, that everybody can be sustained, really. We, we've learned this in the last year, that you, where people have suffered over the course of the last year, um, in lockdown, um, being unable to work, it's not because we haven't had the resources to do so. There's been enough food, warmth, comfort, all the basic stuff around. It's been systems and problems of distribution. Um, so we, we've learned that what I would like to see is an economy where effectively people are actually empowered to do whatever it is they want. It is my firm belief that, it, you know, you end up with people saying that uh, it's only the great markets that have brought us the vaccines so quickly and I, intellectual property. Actually, my sense is that, frankly, if we lived in a world where it didn't matter, if people weren't having to be incentivized to go and work in, I don't know, the Marmite factory or producing rubber knickknacks for disposable knickknacks for children to love for one week, but instead could follow their dream. We'd probably end up in a world with far more doctors and epidemiologists and virologists um, and things that are good for dealing with plagues and conservators and gardeners and all sorts of things. And indeed, we'd have a world where actually, in terms of energy usage, I'd much prefer somebody to stay home playing Xbox than and <laughs> going out and spending huge amounts of energy commuting to an absolutely pointless job. So that's what I'd like to see. I believe that actually a world where everybody was liberated to do what they want would actually be one which produced far more value than the world in which we live in now where a lot of people spend all their working life basically to be able to afford the second home that they'll be able to enjoy for five years before they die after retiring. So that.
0: James, I would strongly encourage you to start up the experiment like crazy party. I think you would have quite a following from the outset. Um, global but, movement, yes. Time for the global movement. I, I, I'm but,
2: trying, but I, I'm
0: too lazy. We'll, we'll see what we can do from this end. But, but I also think that vision of people being able to follow their dreams is such an important one and one that we really need to cling to. So, uh, James Sussman, I think both Anna Greta and I have taken so much from this conversation today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And thank you so much for joining us.
2: Good. Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: Listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. That was an incredible conversation with James Sussman, And I think that set the scene so powerfully for the kinds of issues that we're going to delve into over the coming weeks. We have some incredible thinkers that we will be talking with over the next episodes that are part of this work series. So please do join us as we continue this journey through work and we pull some of those threads together of how work impacts on so many parts of our lives and on the world around us. Please do reach out to us on Twitter. We love to hear your comments. And on Twitter, you can reach us at APPS Policy Forum, that's at APPS Policy Forum, or you can drop us an email podcast at policyforum.net. You can also join our Facebook group, and that's probably the best way to engage in the conversations around the pod. If you just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you will find us there. We would love you to subscribe, and you can do that on any platform that you normally find your podcasts on. And please do leave a review. We love to hear what you have to say, and we take those reviews very seriously. We will be back next week with the next episode in this series on work when we will be talking with the incredible Marilyn Waring. So please do join us for that episode. But for me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Bye, Sharon. Very much looking forward to seeing you next week.